Welcome to another episode of Life Stories by Congo Kid, where I share my experiences of growing up in the Democratic Republic of Congo in Central Africa. My hope is you find knowledge, entertainment, information, and insight of another culture and a new perspective of the Congolese people and Africa. We take paved roads for granted here in the United States. People cruise at 75 miles per hour and don't think anything about it. Going off-road is often seen as macho when folks take their 4x4 pickups out in the dirt and mud or desert and get all dirty and have fun. Unfortunately, in my area where I lived in the Democratic Republic of Congo, we had no paved roads. Travel was by truck or motorcycle on dirt roads. Rainy season meant mud and getting stuck. Dry season meant sand and lots of dust. Averaging 25 miles per hour was a good day behind the wheel of a pickup truck, and often a 50-mile trip could take close to three hours. Our various mission stations were scattered throughout the area, often 50 to 150 miles apart, with some being close to 200 or more miles from one of the main stations. Some outposts were over a day's truck trip away, bouncing around in the dirt, dust, and mud. Time and wear and tear on one's body for sure. In 1966, the two missions groups that worked side by side, the Covenant Church and the EV Free Church, decided to purchase an airplane to help with the work of the mission. It could be used to transport sick people, freight, mail, and people for meetings or conferences. Thus, a Cessna 185 was purchased. It had 300 horsepower and was a tail dragger. They added a luggage pod on the bottom, so it looked like a pregnant goldfish. They brought in Mission Aviation Fellowship, known as MAF, to operate the airplane. MAF's ministry is to support missions groups throughout the world through aviation support. MAF provided the pilot, who also did the maintenance necessary to ensure it was mechanically safe. Those who used the plane paid based on miles flown, which covered fuel, repairs and maintenance, insurance, and the like. Having a plane reduced travel time tremendously. It also allowed travel when sometimes travel by truck was impossible. Say a ferry boat was broken so no vehicles could cross a river, or due to heavy rains and stuck trucks, a road was impassable. A 10-hour bumpy truck trip could be made in an hour by that plane. Efficiencies, convenience, and comfort were all the benefits of having an airplane. The missionaries at Karawa, where the plane was based, pitched in to help build the airstrip and hangar. My dad recalls running a bulldozer for a period of time to build the airstrip in 1966. It was gravel. The plane was painted red and white. The registration on the plane was 9QCMU. Thus, Charlie Mike Uniform were the call letters. Charlie Mike Uniform was at Carowar during all my growing up years and beyond until 1986. With the new plane, all the mission stations had to build airstrips. Often anthills had to be removed. Termites mix saliva with the mud to make their hills, and a pickaxe barely penetrates, so it's very, very hard. Dynamite was often used to blow up the anthills. That and a lot of hard digging to create an airstrip wide and long enough for the plane, usually in the neighborhood of six to 800 meters long. Once these airships were cut out of the forest or grasslands, they had to be maintained. Often a full-time laborer was hired to cut the grass on the airstrip with a long machete to keep it maintained and safe for landing. 
The plane was a total novelty to the Congolese, as most had never seen a plane up close. They'd see commercial jets flying overhead at 35,000 feet, but had never experienced a plane up so close. So when the plane landed at a station, it was big news and that week's entertainment for the local villagers. Since there was virtually no outside mechanical or vehicle noise in Central Africa, one could hear the plane coming from miles away. The drone could be heard from five minutes or more away from landing. And was a sound I remember hearing as a child. Once on the ground, passengers and pilots often had to push people back from the airplane for everyone's safety as they all wanted to crowd around and see it up close. And to watch the kids' faces in amazement as the plane revved up, plowed forward and down the airstrip and then sprung free from Earth's gravity and flew up and up and up was truly special. Charlie Mike uniform was a game changer for the mission in so many regards. Everyone flew on it frequently. For those in the outpost stations, it brought food, supplies, company, sometimes their children from school, and very importantly, the mail, which was a rare treat. It was always exciting when the plane came. As a child, I would fly from Karawa to a distant mission station for vacations from school and return via the plane to school. It was just over an hour in the air versus 10 hours in the back of a truck. The plane seated four adult passengers with a small jump seat in the very back where two kids could sit. Needless to say, I was almost always relegated to the very back. It opened up new frontiers, sped sick people to the hospital, ferried pastors to conferences, and got people to distant locations in hours instead of days. The terrain was a mix of grassland and heavy jungle, so the topography was always changing for the pilot as he would always be vigilant. Once on a flight, I asked John Fairweather, the first pilot of Charlie Mike Uniform, what he was looking at while he flew as his eyes were darting back and forth. He said he was looking for a place to land if the need should arise. Dan Carlson was at Carowa in 1966 in the fourth grade and remembers the plane's arrival. He was ferried around on the plane like everyone else to and from school. It was part of his life growing up. Little did he know that in the 1980s, he'd be representing MAF and serving in ministry to the Congolese and missionaries as its pilot. I've asked Dan to come on and share some of his experiences in and around the Ubangi region of Congo. Welcome, Dan Carlson. Thanks for joining us. Well, I'm glad to be here, Jeff. So you're currently in Congo, correct? That is correct. Kinshasa, Congo. When you were a kid, did you ever think that you'd be piloting that airplane? Probably didn't dream that I would ever fly that airplane, and I actually never did. I flew others like it. A dream come true when I first put the power in on a 185. It was, it was quite an experience. I'll bet. So when did you join Mission Aviation Fellowship, and how many years have you been with them so far in your career? Okay, so I joined Mission Aviation Fellowship in February, I believe, of 1985, going on 35 years. Wow. And what made you choose a career with Mission Aviation Fellowship versus a commercial airline in the United States? Well, I guess uh, when the plane first came to Karawa in 1966, I was finishing up my fourth grade and it made a big impression on me. And at that point, uh, it's like God was talking to me and I wanted to become a pilot, a Mission Aviation Fellowship pilot. And I can, I can say that those, that desire or bent towards Mission Aviation 
had a few roadblocks maybe during the years, but the overall direction uh, always remained the same. And the Lord brought me back to that different times during different years, probably in high school, later in high school was, was one time and, and in college again, but the, the focus was always towards Mission Aviation Fellowship. So during your career with MAF, you've been based in other locations and countries. Share with me a little bit about where you've been based and for how long. Most of our MAF career, we've been in the Democratic Republic of Congo. One year, we were based out of Brazzaville, Congo. And then one year, we were evacuated out of Congo, Kinshasa, and we spent a year in Nairobi, Kenya, flying in Kenya, Tanzania, and southern Sudan. And then one year, we were on loan to Yubak up in Yaoundé, Cameroon, where we were dorm parents at Yubak for one year. But most of the time, we've been in Congo and in various places in Congo, too. So besides flying Charlie Mike uniform, the Cessna 185, you've flown other multi-engine planes, no doubt? After the 185, we flew the Cessna 206, Cessna 210, the Cessna 207, and Cessna 208, which is the caravan, and now also the Pilatus, the PC-12. That's quite an array of airplanes. I remember when you were visiting my wife and I last fall, you'd mentioned you'd accumulated about 15,000 hours of flight time, which is incredible. You've flown all over Africa, as you previously mentioned. Dan, tell me a little bit about what you believe the strangest cargo that you ever hauled. Well, I was loading the plane one day in Boomba, and as I was loading it, there was this rolled up mat like people carry. And I was carrying out an Australian guy back up to Karawa. And he said, well, you might want to be careful because I have a crocodile in that rolled up mat. And I said, oh, a crocodile. Yeah. <laughs> and so I said, okay, we'll put that in the pod. I figured out a place to put it in the pod. Um, Anything else unique or strange that you've hauled on the plane? The strangest stuff is the different wild animals. And normally they're, they're already dead. So, um, but I have flown you know, baby monkeys and little antelope occasionally. But mostly our cargo is just boxes of, of freight, you know, canned goods or medicine or syringes or vaccines. And of course, a lot of different people. So what was another strange thing that you put in the pot of your plane, Dan? Well, probably the most unusual thing is, is the body of a a father who had died at the Carroll Hospital, and I had to, I flew him back to Binga Plantation. And the only way I could get his family in was to put his family in the cabin with me and his body in the pod. There wasn't enough room with all the, his family in the cabin of the 185. So the pod of a 185 is, is long and it's deep. So I decided that's the only way to do it. And the family was fine with it. I asked them if, you know, this is the only way we can do it. And they said, okay, that's the way to do it. And I remember landing down at Binga and taxiing up and the family getting out. And at that time, there was a 
plane based at Binga Plantation, uh, Twin Engine Seneca, and the pilot came out to see me, and he asked where the body was, and I said, well, it's, it's, in, the, it's in the pod. And he, I remember his look on his face was, Jan, really? And I said, yeah, and so we, we pulled him out. So part of the mission effort of MAF was to help mission groups with medical-related flights where you had sick people needing to get to a hospital. Well, one story, there was a sick London lady with an NGO, a non-government organization that came into Carowa. Dr. Roger said, we need to fly her down. She needs to be evacuated to Kinshasa where they have more facilities to take care of her. And I said, okay, well, if we're going to do it, we need to do it tomorrow. And it'll be a round trip. We'll fly direct Kinshasa, unload her, and direct back. So early in the morning, Dr. Roger and I and the lady's husband, and she was basically out of it on a stretcher and took off, flew direct Karawa to Kinshasa Ndolo unloaded her, refueled, and then flew directly back to Karawa and landed there probably about 45 minutes to an hour before sunset getting back to Karawa. That was a long day. I bet. And Dr. Roger was with me the whole day watching her because she was on an IV drip of, I think, quinine uh, into her system at that point because she had really bad case of malaria probably a topic that most pilots don't want to talk about, but have you had any close calls or forced landings in your career? Three forced landings because of engine failures and one forced landing because the nose gear didn't come down in the 210. They all were maintenance related problems. So I guess I've had my fair share and I hope I've had enough to last. I don't need any more of those experiences. Were all of them uh, ended with no major injury to the passengers or to you? Yeah, that's correct. There were no injuries on any of them. So I grew up around Charlie Mike uniform and was involved as I got older, being part of meeting the airplane at the airports and helping shuttle passengers and freight in and out of the plane. But you'd often fly a whole day. You'd make five, six, seven stops, bebopping all over the place, different mission stations and the like. Did you feel that you were just a taxi driver, for lack of a better phrase, even though you were an airplane pilot? I knew that thought of being a taxi man. And in fact, our pastor at our home church, when he was sending us out, said as they were dedicating us and commissioning us as missionaries from the church that you are going to feel some days that you are just a taxi driver. But there were many airstrips, missions that we would go to where I might be the only pale face that the missionary there had seen in in a couple weeks, if not, you know, a month. So the pilots always saw themselves as a link from the missionary to, well, back in the day, we used to bring a lot of mail, you know, back to their, the missionary's home or whatever. I guess the difference between 20 years ago and the way it is now is we are the link to the Congolese doctor or the Congolese pastor out in the bush 
back to their home areas as well, back into Kinshasa or, or to Carroll or wherever it might be when we hit a real bush airstrip. I guess when you load and unload the plane with so many bilocos, you know, bilocos, the, the belongings of the passengers or the freight that you're flying in, you realize that you are a real lifeline to the people out in the bush. And that's, you know, we've tried to look at it and keep the focus on not just being a driver, but having a servant attitude towards the people that were flying around. We're not doing it for the money, I can tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) Contrary to one day feeling like you're just a taxi driver, even though you are a link, what were some of your more fulfilling flights or experiences if you're to look back on your career as far as meaningful? Some of those flights would include flying a bunch of nurses back to Kerala for a recyclage, which is just like a week of continuing education for nurses, nurses who have been out in the bush stations or bush uh, dispensaries like Bado. Other flights were flying the Christoffel Blinden mission, Christian blind mission doctors but uh, flying them around as they did a lot of different surgeries for uh, cataracts and glaucoma. Those were pretty fulfilling. And then also flying some evangelists down and when we moved to Semendoa, then we had opportunities to fly in a larger geographic area. And I flew a couple other evangelists to Bujimai for a couple of days and they had evangelism times with the church there, and then also in Kananga, dropped off in Kananga and spent a couple days there in Kananga with them. Those are good flights, memorable flights. And also flying guys who are doing relief and development work and flying uh, guys who are doing ag work out to their stations and uh, agroforestry or trying to get a palm plantation going back again. Well, there's a lot of lot of memorable flights. You know, we're, we've been flying a lot of vaccine flights for many years now. Every month we fly vaccine flights. And the first time you do it, it seems pretty cool. But after you've flown it 10 times, you know, it gets to be a little bit old, I guess. But without those flights, a whole area would not be vaccinated against measles, for example. And there are still areas in this country where the vaccination levels of measles is really low. Right now, there could be way more people dying of measles than there will ever die of this coronavirus that's hitting Congo now and the rest of the world. They will have way more people that die of measles and malaria this year in this country than will ever die of the corona. Flying all over the country and knowing how sensitive the military and the government authorities would be of you as a pilot and bringing an airplane, did you ever get stopped? Did you ever get arrested? Did you get accused of being part of uh, another country's military or a spy or any kind of hassles that you ever got militarily on your flights throughout the country? Most of those problems came during the transition between what was the country before, well, when the first Kabila took over and the rebellion after he took over, 
we were flying over the whole country during that time. And sometimes when we crossed the border between the rebellion side and the government side, and don't ask me which side was really <laughs> the best, but we would get stuck sometimes for a couple of hours while we radioed back to the governing authority of whatever airstrip we were at to get clearance to continue on with the flight. And there was a period of time, in fact, a number of years, when we were flying with security people on board the airplane who were there for our protection and would talk to the local people on the ground and verify that we were there with the approval of the government. I only had to spend one extra night. There was never really any danger to us. When I was a child, I heard that the airplane, Charlie Mike Uniform, had a 22 caliber gun in the tail in case the plane ever crash landed in the jungle and the passengers would need to be able to shoot animals for food. Is that true or is that just a rumor that I've uh, carried with me for 45, 50 years of my life? I think it's actually true. It was a 22 rifle and it was, it was still at Karawa when I got there, but you would have to ask Uncle John Fairweather. You were the pilot of the plane, but because you were stationed out in the bush, you had to have extra training to be the mechanic. So did you do all the mechanical maintenance on it or were there certain procedures that had to actually go to a different MAF facility for higher level maintenance? I would do all the 50 hour inspections and all the 100 hour inspections. Then when we needed an engine change or a propeller change, we would either well, the engine changed. Normally, we, we flew the plane down to Caro, uh, to Kinshasa Ndolo and changed the engine down there. Sometimes with the propeller, they flew the propeller up in the caravan and we would install the propeller at Karawa. That's not such a big deal. But engine changes and then thousand hour, every thousand hours or thereabouts, we would do a big inspection where we would really go through all the cables and all the pulleys, all the attach points, and check for cracks. You had to have a home base, and you had to be connected via shortwave radio. Karen, your wife, was the home base operator. So what were the procedures and processes that you implemented to make sure that you were always known as far as where you were and keeping track of your takeoff and landings throughout the day? Yeah, normally Karen was on the radio and we had our own frequency, so it was different than the mission frequency. First thing in the morning at Karawa, we would get on the radio on the, on the mission frequency and give them our schedule for the day and then also give weather at all the different stations and give them the times, the ETAs for each place that we'd be at. And then we'd turn it over to whoever was running the, the mission sked and they would do their thing and get everything out. But then when I took off, before I took off, I would call Karen or the radio operator, whoever it happened to be. Sometimes it was Karen, sometimes it would be over at Tandala. And we would tell them how many 
souls we were in the plane. So one plus five would be, you know, myself as the one and five passengers. And then how many hours of fuel we had on board. So three hours endurance of fuel and where we were going. They knew where we were and where we were going. So it'd be like, and then after takeoff, I would say airborne at 0730, estimating Goyongo at 0802, climbing to flight level. So then they knew my ETA for Goyongo and what altitude I'd be normally flying at. And then every 30 minutes after takeoff, we would give a position report. And so then we would call them and tell them we were landing. And then after we were on the ground, then we would call them again and say, you know, 92 flight, Charlie Mike, Lima or whatever it is, is on the ground. Then we would call them again before we took off from telling we were one plus three, whatever. So just we'd just do that all day. Looking back in your career and your desire to be a missionary and serve missionaries with the aviation and serve the Congolese people, how do you see that the plane and your piloting fulfilled that goal uh, of being a missionary and serving others in Africa? Well, the main thing for us in Congo and in most of Africa is using the plane saves hours and hours and hours of driving on the road. Where we are right now in Kinshasa, if you were to drive out to a mission, the closest mission, it's only not even an hour's flight in a 206. But to get there by road would take all day. We just save people hours and hours and hours of bumping on the road and being just really worn out by the time they get there. And that's the main advantage of flying. Last year, when I flew a few people out to Kole, and that's in the middle of the country, we were there after three hours of flying. For them to have driven there, they would have had to have an amazing four-wheel drive that could go through rivers and cross streams. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's almost impossible. The, the best way to get there really is to go by boat. Now it would have taken two and a half, three weeks as long as they didn't have too many hassles with these stops on the way to go through the immigration people who are just trying to control everybody's travels. So, you know, some of these places are almost impossible to get to by road. I mean, you can do it, but it just takes forever. To wrap up, when you think of 9Q CMU, Charlie Mike Uniform, as we called that airplane, what memory comes to mind? What thought comes to mind when you think back on that one airplane? Well, it was the plane that picked me up when I fell out of the car, out of the truck, going back for a Christmas vacation one time and broke my collarbone. When I think of that plane, Uncle Gordy and Uncle John flying us back to Bow for vacations and then coming to pick us up at Bow. It's the plane that I rode in the back of because my brother and sister would get sick. So I got to ride in the very back of the 185 for many years until I was too large, well, too big. And then I graduated to the front seat because then I was heavier than dad. Charlie Mike Uniform served our mission efforts in Congo for many years. It saved many lives transporting sick people, medicines, 
freight, and help spread the gospel to the Congolese. It was a time saver for hundreds of missionaries, pastors, and civilians to help them carry out their business and ministry, and was integral to all of our lives. After a life well-lived, the well-flown Cessna 185 with 9Q CMU painted on its tail, affectionately known as Charlie Mike Uniform, was sold in 1986 to another group who used it in Eastern Congo. Unfortunately, shortly after purchase, the new owner didn't tighten the oil plug properly and the engine got ruined and thus ended a life well served by that airplane. This isn't the fairy tale ending of resting peacefully in the great big hangar in the sky we'd all hoped for. Nonetheless, John Fairweather and the others that piloted 9Q CMU can honestly say, job well done, Charlie Mike Uniform. So that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and will join me again. Other episodes and blog articles on a variety of topics can be found at congokid.net. In addition, Life Stories by Congo Kid Podcasts can be found on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. I'm Jeff Eels, a.k.a. Congo Kid, your humble host. Until next time, I send you off with a farewell in Lingala. Paninganangai, tikalamalamu. My friends, stay well. Hey, Malumuna. Hey, Malumuna.